Allison was uh, pregnant with uh, Shepard, uh, she wasn't sure that I'd be able to survive the big moment uh, when the baby uh, would come. And uh, she knew that I'm not a big fan of doctors and I'm not a big fan of needles and I'm not a big fan of blood or germs or hospitals or nurses or nurses assistants or, or anything that may result in me being harmed uh, or poked or prodded or searched or examined, not a fan. Uh, and she was worried that I wouldn't be able to be there for, for the big moment, but I was determined. Uh, to stand strong. Can I get a witness, man? I, I was determined uh, to stay strong for when my woman needed me uh, most, or maybe she didn't need me, but I was determined uh, to be strong and to be there for the entire event. And I will tell you what an event it was. Uh, even before the big moment came, I'll never forget, uh, they said, well, it's time for the epidural. And uh, is it all right if I tell this? Uh, and, and so I meant to do this earlier. Uh, but the time the epidural came and uh, they got Allison, you know, they said, sit up there on the edge of the bed. And, you know, of course, they're going to put that needle in, into her spine. And they said, now, husband, come, come over here and, and just let her hold on to you. And whatever you do, don't let her move. This is really serious. This is really important. Okay. I, I know how serious needles are. And, and so a needle in the spine, whole other level. And, and so you don't have to tell me twice, and so I'm there. And, and all of a sudden, the anesthesiologist starts doing what the anesthesiologist needs to do with that needle. And Allison grabs a hold of my ears like horns of the altar and just starts pulling. And I can't move. I, I, my wife could be paralyzed if I move, and she's making me pay for every sin I ever committed. In that moment, I thought to myself, having a baby is the most painful thing I've ever had. I, I mean, this is just unbelievable. I, I, I'm telling you, this is, th this is wild. This is crazy. And so I survived. And, uh, so, and she, she got the epidural. And, and then when it's time for Shepard to be born, the doctor uh, looked over and says, come over here and deliver your son. And, and my first thought wasn't, wow, awesome, incredible. I, I'm ashamed to say it. My first thought was, I don't have gloves on. And... <laughs> And, and I said, Doc, I, d I don't have gloves on. And he said, well, you won't hurt him. I said, no, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about this baby. I'm talking about me. What are you talking about? And, and so, but I did. I, I, I did what a good dad would do. I stepped around there, stepped up to the plate, and at the bottom of the knife with the 3-2 count and the bases loaded, grand slam for dad. And then when Grayson came along, uh, it was a Sunday, so I was dressed to preach. And so I had on a pair of my favorite favorite boots and uh, so we ended up at the hospital and sure enough you know everybody else I noticed they have on you know medical garbs uh, robes and you know visors and you know masks and hats and booties and you know the doc again says hey we'll step around here and deliver your son and and this time I wasn't worried about the hands been there done that bought that shirt but this time I'm thinking those are my good boots I can't do this with my good boots. And then of course it's like, okay, you just got, you got to do this. And, and I tell you all that because every parent knows and every parent's experienced and every parent can say this, that once upon a time, the birth of a baby changed my life. Is that not true mom? Is that not true dad? That once upon a time, the birth of a baby changed your life? As a parent, when your baby's born, whether you're the father, your mother, you're the mother, it's just unavoidable. Your whole life will change. You will go from well-rested to not. You will go from well socialized 
tonight. Well traveled, tonight. Well sexed, tonight. And, and, and it's just going to be a change for a while. I mean, it's just going to be different. I mean, the, whole, the baby's going to change your life. And, and you just walk around kind of in a zombified state. And, you know, you, you just have a little internal mantra that says, don't wake the baby. Don't drop the baby. Don't hurt the baby. Don't forget the baby. Don't accidentally kill the baby. And then you just repeat it to yourself over and over again. Don't drop the baby, you know. And, and that's kind of how life is for the next little bit. And, uh, you know, you find yourself doing things that you would never, ever think of doing because of a baby. I mean, it changed your life. Uh, I remember one time Shepard, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't, he was a little tiny baby. Allison had gone back uh, after maternity leave and, and he couldn't, he couldn't go to the restroom and it was just terrible and he just started crying and it was just bloody murder type of screams and I, I, I just, I was, oh, I called Allison and, you know, she was on call at the hospital. I said, hey, you know, here's what's going on and, and she goes, well, he's, he's probably just, you know, kind of stuck and, and you may have to turn him over and, and pull, pull it out. That day I discovered how far my love will go. I discovered that there's a place that my love for my children, I'm just not going there. Can't we start with prayer and anointing oil? Can't we just squeeze hard like toothpaste and hope for the best? I don't know, but no, no sir, no ma'am, that's not happening. I'll call a medical chopper. I'll call a friend who's a doctor, let them make a house. I am not. I mean, you'll find yourself entertaining things that you've never entertained before once you become a parent. And you know that if you're a mom or your dad. And maybe one day you'll know that if you're a mom or a dad or you have a niece or a nephew, you know the power of a baby. Now, when it comes to the story of the Bible, which we've been talking about for quite some time, once upon a time, the birth of a baby changed the world. It's one thing to have a baby born in your house and it changed you and it kind of changed the way you live your life. But... But the birth of a baby who changes the world, that's, that's a matter of fact. That's a matter of, of history. Uh, once upon a time, a baby changed the world. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus. The world would change when the angel appeared to Mary and said those words, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Mary, your life is about to change. But Mary, more than that, the world is about to change. And you're to call him Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Those words changed the world. And the birth of Jesus marked the turning point. The birth of Jesus marked the turning point in the most epic story ever told. And it actually marked the beginning of the midpoint of this epic story. Now, if you're a guest of ours, uh, we have been in a series uh, now for weeks and weeks and weeks all about the Bible. And we've been talking about the fact that the Bible is not a book, but it is a collection of books. It's 66 books, matter of fact, uh, written by over 40 different authors uh, in three different languages on three different continents, written over a period of 1,500 years. It's got two parts. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. And within those two parts, there's hundreds of stories. Some of them are charming. Some of them are you know, cute. Some of them are confusing. Some of them are troubling. Some of them we wish just weren't in there at all. Yet within all of those stories, the Bible's telling one story. Even though the Bible has two parts, it's only making one point. And that's what this series has been about. And today, uh, I've either got good news or bad news. Uh, today, we wrap this series up. Uh, today, we, we go to the ending of the story. 
And there's really no way, as I tried to think about this and pray about this over the last few weeks because I, I knew where this was all heading. I really wish we had like two more weeks or three more weeks or four more weeks, but we just don't. There's really no easy way to end this series because there's so many things that are part of this story and, and just trying to, to boil it all down into one capsule so that we can take it and digest it in one sitting. That's a, that's a challenging thing to do. That's a difficult thing to do. But I uh, really thought that the best way to talk about the end of the story was to once again begin at the beginning of the story because the ending of the story will point us back to the beginning of the story. And once you understand and I understand the ending of the story, we will see that the beginning of the story is so very relevant to how this story of the scripture actually ends. And so in the very beginning of this series, we started with the beginning of the story because without the beginning of the story, there's no context for the rest of the story. But here's the beautiful thing about how epic this story is. At the very beginning of the story, though we didn't know it, if we were just reading it for the very first time, at the very beginning of the story, we are getting a clue about what's going to happen at the very ending of the story. And there's no way that we can actually appreciate fully the end of the story unless we really begin to understand more fully the beginning of the story. And so this is how the story began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Remember that? Genesis 1 verse 1. And at the very beginning of the story of the scripture, we are introduced to the mind and to the architect of all reality, both time, space, and matter, that we are introduced to the one uncreated creator God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, heavens that would reflect and declare the glory of God and humanity, which would reflect and declare the image of God. And that's what we find in the very beginning. The heavens declaring the glory of God and mankind, humanity, man and woman created in such a way that they bear the image of God. And so this is how the story begins. It's the image of God that brings to every person their worth and their dignity, regardless of what they believe or regardless of how they behave. And, and again, that was all established from the very beginning. And so God places humanity, his image bearers. He, he places them into the Garden of Eden. And here was the point of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Humanity in the Garden. The point was, they are going to rule and reign alongside of the Creator God. God created His image bearers as representatives. They would be His representatives to rule and to reign here upon the earth with their Creator God. And so God created the Garden of Eden and we talked about how that was sacred space. It was, it was much like the first temple. It was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was almost as if they were one. It was almost as if they were one entity rather than two different entities. Heaven and earth overlapped, and there was a common space where God was, and there was a common space where humanity was. We now think of heaven and earth as heaven being God's space and earth being humanity's space. But in the beginning, there was heaven and there was earth and God's space and man's space. It was together. It intersected there in the Garden of Eden. And God's presence was there and man's presence was there. And God places humanity there and he gives them, like he's given to all of us, free will, the choice to determine our own future. And because we have free choice, we have responsibility for the lives that we live. And so he put them in the garden and he says, you can have all the trees, but you cannot have the tree of knowledge 
of good and evil. You just can't eat from it. And so God gave them freedom except for one tree. And you know the story, but this is the story we have to go back and revisit in order to understand the end of the story. God gave them a choice like God gives you a choice and God gives me a choice. And they chose their way over God's way. They chose to seize power that day. They chose to take the power into their own hands, listen, to redefine good and evil themselves. Defining good and evil was a place only for God to exercise his knowledge and his authority. But they seized the power that day through their choice in order to define good and evil based upon their own perspective, based upon their own level of knowledge. And that day they dethroned God. It was history's first coup d'etat. It was the first overthrowing of a monarch and God was dethroned as king over their lives in this kingdom where they were supposed to rule and reign with God. And so they sought to build their own kingdom out from under the authority of God. And their story is our story because we've all dethroned God through our choices and through our behavior. We've all experienced our own coup d'etat and we've tried to build our own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And we all decided at some point to sit upon the throne of our own lives over our own kingdoms, trying to take the ability and the power and the place of defining good and evil for ourselves. And so their choice that day in the garden, back there in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, Back there, that choice brought into the world sin, sorrow, and death. That choice brought in sin, sorrow, and death. And if you're a student of history, you know that on every page of history, there's sin, there's sorrow, there's death. Yeah, there's some bright spots. Yes, there's some positive things. Yes, there's some wonderful things and great things and valiant things and noble things. But on the pages of history, every single page is littered with sin sorrow and death and it all goes back to that choice that day in the garden and that's the beginning of the story and the storyline was this god created we rebelled we ran away and god's coming after us i know you don't want to but i want us to say it out loud one more time because we've said it so many times i want you to understand that this is how the story begins let's say it at all of our churches together god created we rebelled we ran away god's coming after us now The remainder of the story, again, is God stopping at nothing to win his family back. It's the revelation of a God who never, ever gives up on us. It's the revelation of a God who never, ever gives up on you. And so God makes the promise of a Savior who will come and undo everything that sin, sorrow, and death has brought into the world. Everything that happened because of Adam's failure at that tree in the garden There's going to be a savior, a hero, a Messiah who will show up and undo all the consequences of Adam's choice. And so God promised Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob that from them would come a savior. And then God promised within the the nation of Israel from the tribe of Judah that out of that tribe, a savior would come. And within that tribe, a man by the name of Jesse, he said, out of your line, the Savior will come. And then out of the house of his son, David, the Savior would come. And the story begins to unfold of how a family becomes a nation that God would use to save the world. And the message, as we talked about last week, is simply this on every single page. Someone is coming. Don't miss it. That's the Old Testament. Someone is coming. Don't miss it. And so in the Old Testament, the promise of God was the hope of his people. They were hoping for the Savior. 
They were looking for this Savior. They were longing for him to arrive, to show up, to reveal himself. And then, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it is the story of sin doing what sin always does. Hurting, harming, destroying, abusing, oppressing, killing. Who? This is big. This, don't miss this. Who? The image of God. What is sin always warring against? What are the forces of darkness always warring against? The image of God. The image of God in this world. God's representatives in this world. And when you cannot strike at God himself, you strike at his image. You strike at his creation. You strike at his children. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. The devastation comes to individuals and dysfunction comes to families and divisions come to communities and injustice and oppression and war. It comes to nations. And all in the wake of it all is death. This is the story as it unfolds. We see sin doing what sin does, but in the Old Testament, we see God doing what God does. Loving, warning, forgiving, redeeming, restoring what sin, sorrow, and death had taken away. And on every page, we see what sin always does, and we see what God always does. And it's the story that just repeats itself generation after generation in different context after different context. It was dark at times, and it was bad at times, and it was heartbreaking and backbreaking at times. But the echo of God's promise was always a flicker in the darkness. And so the Old Testament closes with unkept promises. And it's hard for us to even think about it, but, but one part of the Bible, 39 books of stories, it ends with unkept promises. The unkept promises of God with no Savior in sight. And so the Old Testament is a story without an ending. There is no ending to the story per se in the Old Testament. And a story without an ending is what? <laughs> it's not a story at all. Every great story requires a great ending. How many knows that a great story can be ruined by a bad ending? A great movie. With great characters, a great plot can be ruined by a terrible ending. How many ever watched what you thought was a great movie until you got to the very end and you're like, this movie was terrible, horrible. You read a book and all throughout the book you were like, you were just on every page like you just couldn't wait to read more and then you got to the end and you're like, are you, are you kidding me? You just, did you just not try hard enough? Did you get tired? Did you, what happened? This happened to us when we watched the series Lost. How many of y'all have ever watched Lost before? None of you. Okay. Don't then. Just don't. Uh, I mean, we watched that. We watched that sucker. I guarantee you there were some weekends we pulled, not an all-nighter, but an all-nighter and an all-dayer the next day. I, I mean, we just couldn't stop watching. And then finally, when it came time for the series to end, and I was expecting all these unanswered questions to be answered, and I was expecting all this resolution... And it's like, I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's worth it until the end. And then at the end, you just regret everything. It's like, are you serious? Or, or you know, How I Met Your Mother, the sitcom. I just wanted to kick a cat. I, I just, if you're a cat lover, I'm sorry. Kick a tree. Kick a rock, what, Whatever. I wouldn't really kick a cat. I would, but only if it attacked me, all right? 
I, I just, I just, it just was, it was terrible. The worst one of all, the, the, hands down, I'm sorry, Mr. Cameron, Titanic. I mean, we knew how it was going to end. There was no surprise ending. But that whole little thing, Chuck, Chuck, roll your tail over and let him get on the board with you. Jack's a skinny man. He can roll over on one side. I've got faith both of you can. Are you kidding? I hated that. I just. That's kind of the Old Testament. If you're reading the Old Testament, Jack's drifting off into frigid waters and you're like, what? If you just started at Genesis 1 and you're like, this is part of the Bible. This is the first part of the Bible. This is a major part of the story. You get to the end, it's like, there's no ending. And if this is the ending, it stinks. Then the New Testament opens. And it's standing on the shoulders of the Old Testament. It's like, whew, thank God. This is not over yet. And then the birth of Jesus happens. And it marks the turning point of the story. It marks the beginning of what I think is the very short middle part of the story. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they present Jesus as Savior, Christ, and Lord. And there's one event which convinced the writers of Jesus being Savior, Christ, and Lord. And that was the resurrection. And that's where we ended last week. And here's the thing. Don't ever forget this. Lots of people want to think that the climax of the story, that the zenith part of the story... It's really at the very end. I don't think it is. The climax of the story happens in the Gospels. It's the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the climax of the story. And it's that one event, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, collectively is one event in history which convinced the people of his generation that Jesus was Savior. He was Christ. He was Lord. They were witnesses of the resurrection. The original 11 and then the women and then up to 500 according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And so they wrote about it. And that's why we have the New Testament. Without Jesus, we don't care about the Old Testament. Without Jesus, we don't have a New Testament. But there's Jesus, the climax of the story. He dies for our sin. He takes our penalty, the sinless one, dying for the sins of sinners. And Jesus paying our debt because we could not pay it ourselves. Jesus on the cross took on the forces of sin, sorrow, and death. And he confronted all of hell and all the principalities and powers of spiritual wickedness in high places. And all the power of sin, sorrow, and death were exhausted against the Son of God. But on the third day, he rose up victorious over sin, sorrow, and death. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the end of the story. Because everything else after that flows from that climax of the story. And what we find out is that Jesus' death and resurrection, it inaugurated a new covenant, a new creation, a new exodus, a new kingdom, a new commandment, and the hope of a new heaven and new earth. And I would just, oh, I just wish I could just camp out here for a while. I may just do it, but just for a second. What you find at the beginning of the Bible, you find 
in the beginning of the Gospels. This is so amazing. And, and, and for anybody who just believes that the scripture is chance and anybody who just believes that, you know, once upon a time, you know, some people got together. I'm telling you, this is the most, this is the most epic story that's ever been composed by a group of people who didn't even know they were composing the most epic story of all time. They didn't even know how vast this story was. Everything at the beginning of the story, it's repeated. In the second half in the New Testament, Jesus shows up. He inaugurates through his resurrection a brand new covenant, not with the house of Israel, but with all the nations of the world. Not a covenant based on law, but a covenant based on grace. And this is so big. Don't miss this. We are a people of grace. We are not a people of works. Do we believe in good works? Yes, but only because we have received grace. We first received grace apart from good works. Our salvation is not of our works. It is the gift of God, lest any person should boast. We were dead in trespasses. We were dead in sins, but we were made alive in Christ Jesus who conquered sin, sorrow, and death. And so that's the beginning of this new covenant. And in this new covenant, there is a brand new creation. Just jot it down for later. Read John chapter one, verses one through five. It is a brand new Genesis account. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he begins to tell that all things were created were created by the word or by the Logos. And in the gospel of John chapter one, it is a brand new reiteration of Genesis because a brand new creation has taken place. The apostle Paul shows up and says, if anybody be in Christ Jesus, they are a brand new creature, a brand new creation. Why? All things are passing away. And this is huge. All things, all things. How many things? All things, all things are becoming new. There's a brand new creation. God had promised in the Old Testament he was gonna give us a new heart and he was gonna give us a new mind and he was gonna give us a new potential and a new capacity to follow and to love and to serve him and that's part of the new creation. And then there's a new exodus. Moses led Israel out of the land of slavery. But in the New Testament, Jesus, our greater Moses, he delivers us out of the tyranny of sin, sorrow, and death. He rescues us out of the kingdom of darkness and there's a brand new exodus. We are no longer slaves to sin. There's a brand new kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom that is infiltrating this world. There's a new commandment in the kingdom. Love one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love others as though Christ Jesus in the way that he has loved you. And then, this is the big part, this is the great part. There is the brand new hope. In the Old Testament, there was the hope of an arrival. There was the hope of a savior showing up. But now, after the savior has shown up, there's a new hope, a new type of promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And so we find everything being repeated, but in a grander way, in a much more comprehensive way, in a global way. Jesus died and he spent a few weeks with his disciples and then it was time for him to ascend back into heaven. And they, they didn't really anticipate that because they thought after the resurrection, they thought that Jesus was gonna establish the kingdom. They thought that God's kingdom was gonna be set up physically and visibly and Jesus was gonna go into Jerusalem and dethrone Pilate and dethrone Caesar and set on the throne of David. And that's what they fully expected because that's what the Old Testament has said. But here's Jesus, he's out there on the Mount of Olives and he starts going up into heaven and they're like, what, hey, ho, where are you going? And they're sitting there looking and he's talking to them and he's telling them, go into all the world and tell people what's happened. 
Make disciples, baptize them. Start in Jerusalem, go to the ends of the earth. And then as they're watching Jesus ascend into heaven, it says that two men in white apparel appeared to them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, let's all just say it together. This same Jesus. Time out. What Jesus? The one that the Old Testament pointed to and said was coming. The one that the Gospels point at and says he came. And now the one that's leaving, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back. And this was new. They didn't really see this coming. Jesus had kind of talked about this. Jesus told them, if I go away, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself. And they were like, ah, you know, I don't know what he means, and we hardly ever know what he means, so we'll just write it down. <laughs> he will come back in the same way, in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now, th this puzzled the disciples. Because, again, they thought after the resurrection, <laughs> we're going to Jerusalem, baby. We're setting up the kingdom. We're going to sit on his right. We're going to sit on his left. We're going to rule and reign. We're going to rule and reign with him just like Adam and Eve was supposed to rule and reign with God in the Garden of Eden. But it didn't happen. He, he leaves. And then they begin to realize because the Old Testament, don't ever forget this. This is good. The Old Testament is only understood in reverse. The Old Testament can only be fully understood in reverse. You, you get to Jesus and then you look back and then you begin to understand the Old Testament. You, you, you get to know Jesus and what he said and what he's doing and what's happening with Jesus. And then you begin to look back and now you're learning in reverse what the prophets were talking about the whole time. You see, the Old Testament had talked about the coming Messiah, but the Old Testament did not anticipate that the Messiah would come, then leave and come again. The Old Testament looked at the coming of the Messiah as one event where lots of things were going to happen at that one event. That's why the disciples thought that they were going to set up the kingdom because they saw it as one event. They thought Jesus was there to stay. They didn't know that Jesus was coming only to leave, only to come back. And so they begin to figure it out. And they begin to preach accordingly. Peter stands up and preaches. He's at the temple one day and he says, friends, I realized that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. In other words, you killed him because you didn't know who he was. You didn't read your scriptures correctly. You didn't weigh in the balance the evidence. What your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets have foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. And we've talked about that, Isaiah 53, that he's coming, he's gonna be wounded and pierced. Now repent, he says, of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Now listen, this is so big. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will again, he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For, for he must remain in heaven until, until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets. The story had been there the whole time. But, but we just didn't know how to make sense of it. The story had been there the whole time, but we, we just didn't know how to divide it up. And now the apostles are beginning to understand that whatever promises are left unfulfilled are gonna be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus. There were promises fulfilled at what we call the first advent, but there will be the rest of the promises 
that will be fulfilled in the second advent or the second coming when Jesus returns to this world. That Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of all the prophets, all the promises. They are in Jesus and they are Christ and they are amen and they are all going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so here became the theology of the apostles and the church. The resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee that the best is yet to come. That was it. It was the climax of the story. It was the down payment on everything else that's coming next. It was God saying, hey, don't sweat it. They waited for thousands of years. And, 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 you know, against hope, they held on to hope. But I'm telling you, you you don't have to fight to hold on to hope because God has done something in this generation. God's son died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. People saw it. They wrote it down. And he's promised to come again. And as surely as he came the first time, he's going to come again the second time. How do you know? Because there's an empty tomb. And the resurrection of Jesus, it is the predictor. It is the guarantee that the best for you, the best for me, the best for the church, the best for heaven, the best for earth is yet to come. And so the apostles pick up the message of the prophets once again. They begin to realize that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, not only does it have individual consequences for people who place their faith in it, but the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus has global, cosmic implications. When Jesus died and took on the powers of darkness, when Jesus died and took on the power of death, when Jesus let sin, sorrow, and death exhaust its power on him on the cross and then through love brought life out of death, it was the promise that all the cosmos, all things in time, space, would be changed. In the garden, when sin, sorrow, and death entered in, not only was humanity impacted, but all of creation was impacted. When the second Adam conquered sin, sorrow, and death, that act also changed something in the cosmos. This is what the prophet said. Listen to this again. You, you, you heard this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. I read that back to you a few weeks ago. But this is what Isaiah goes on to say. The wolf will live with the lamb. Well, that doesn't happen. There's such a thing as predation. There's such a thing as hierarchical standards within nature. And, you know, there's the food chain. And, you know, at the top of the food chain. And we go down. And he says, no, the, there's coming a day when the wolf will live with the lamb. That all of nature, in some way, it's going to change. The leopard will lie down with the goat. That doesn't happen. The calf and the lion and the yearling, they will be together. That doesn't happen. That's not nature. It's almost as though the prophet saw a day when nature would be turned upside down, that nature, it would change course, that there would be a new nature, a new created order, and a little child will lead them. We don't let little children play with animals like that. It goes on, and Isaiah says, the cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw with the ox and the infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest and they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For why? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, Isaiah said, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and the resting place will be glorious. Now, that didn't happen. When Jesus came the first time entirely. So there must be a future time when God will keep this outstanding part of the promise. 
Isaiah would say again, there's coming a day that he will judge between the nations. He will settle dispute for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There's coming a day when armies are gonna retire and navies are gonna retire and air force and weapons and guns and swords and knives and anything that can be used to harm someone in the image of God. It's gonna be put aside. Isaiah, when is that gonna happen? Ezekiel would say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all of your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, listen, oh, this is so good. This is so good. This land was laid waste. It has become like the Garden of Eden. It's going to become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins and desolate and destroyed are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed. I have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm telling you, if this doesn't inspire you to read some of what's in this incredible story, I just don't know what will. If this doesn't build faith, if this doesn't cause a deeper love of and appreciation for the story of God, Listen to Isaiah. This is, this is so, this is genius. I don't know if you appreciate brains. I do. Stupid people are going to be redeemed one day to the glory of God. Non-thinking people one day redeemed for the glory of God. I don't know how you feel about intellect and genius, but I'm telling you they're worth celebrating. And the writers of scripture, they had no idea how genius they were because they were inspired by the very mind of God as God was architecting this story. Listen to Isaiah. He says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And they would hear these prophecies. They would hear Ezekiel talk about a day when salt water turns fresh, when the desert will bloom green. Amos talked about a day when every broken wall would be rebuilt and the reapers would be overtaken by plowmen and new wine would drip off the trees and wine would flow down from the mountains and every blind eye would see and every deaf person would hear and the lame would leap and sand would turn to pools of water. And they would listen to this and they would think, when is this going to happen? And the disciples, they thought that's what Jesus was going to do. But he ascended back into heaven. And the desert was still desert. And some walls were still broken down. And the desert wasn't blooming. And then in the New Testament, there's the development of this grand idea of what is called our blessed hope. And Paul writes about it. And James writes about it. And Peter writes about it. And they write about a future day when the Jesus that came the first time would come a second time. Now, I'm gonna wrap it up here in just a moment. Most of us grew up thinking that Christianity was all about escaping hell and going to heaven. That was as big as our Christianity was. That was as big, that was as grand, that was as glorious, that was in depth as it came. Do you wanna to go to hell when you die? No, well, make me a Christian. What's the Bible say? It doesn't matter. Just sign me up. Just sign me up. It's like, we thought it was all about heaven. But then you read the story and 
Heaven's not even the final destination. Heaven's not even like the focal point. Everybody's, what's heaven going to be like? It didn't tell us because we're not going to be there very long. We're told that to be absent from the body in this life is to be present with God. Wherever God is, wherever his presence currently is, wherever his abode within the heavens, where it is, we will be there with him. When you die in this life, we're present with him. And that's as big as it got right there. When you die, you go to heaven. And, and, and most of us, we grew up with an image of heaven that wasn't, quite frankly, very attractive. We, vision, we envisioned heaven as, oh. White harps, gonna get you wings, right? God bless them. They finally got their wings. No, they didn't. <laughs> and we, and, we, and this is, you know, I sit there. They talk. I tell you, when we get to heaven, it's gonna be great. It's gonna, it's gonna be an unending worship service. In the church I grew up in, that was not good news. And it's like, what? This is heaven? Boy, heaven's a lot like this. That's still better than the other, so I guess. Is there a back row? Are there coloring books? Can I, can I have, you know, it's like, that's what we thought. Heaven's just gonna be unending singing. And if you're not a singer, it's like. I guess. But the message of the New Testament is bigger than that. It's better than that. It's that everything that is good and beautiful about your life, everything that is good and beautiful about creation, when you get together with friends and you're having a dinner party and there's laughing and there's the telling of stories and there's the bonding, all of that's going to be in the life to come. When you go outside and you look at the mountains and you look at the stars and you look at all of created the order and you think, man, God is good. There's going to be all of that. When you cuddle with your kids and you've never felt more loved and you never felt like you've loved more, there's going to be all of that. Everything good and beautiful about this life is in the life to come. It's in the new created order. It's in the new heavens. It's in the new earth. And John, he saw this. He saw this. God gave him a vision of this. Of the victorious lamb. And he said, I saw the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah talked about. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the new heaven, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Beautifully dressed for her husband. There's gonna be cities and there's gonna be nations. There's gonna be music and there's gonna be art. And there's going to be friendship. There's going to be athletics. There's going to be conversation. There's going to be storytelling. There's going to be parties. There's going to be work. There's going to be self-fulfillment. There's going to be all of these things in the life to come. In the new created order. There's going to be everything. There's going to be nations and leaders. and They're going to eat and enjoy one another's company. And all of our memories are going to be from God's perspective. We're going to see history as redeemed with every I dotted and every T crossed. John said, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people 
and he will dwell with them because that's where he's always wanted to be. He brought heaven and earth together in Eden. Sin tore heaven and earth apart and God's been doing his best. He was willing to do whatever it took to bring heaven and earth back together. He wants to be with us and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God because there's a new heaven and a new earth. Tell us, John, what's it going to be like? He's going to wipe all the tears from their eyes. They'll never cry again, a tear of sadness. They'll never tie, you know, they'll never cry a tear about loss or the death of someone they cared about. There will be no more death. No one dies in the new heaven and the new earth. Nobody gets sick. Nobody gets cancer. No child dies before they're supposed to. There's no more death. It's so much better. There's no mourning or crying or pain for the old order. The old order of sin, sorrow, and death. It's passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And John, he looked at all of that. He looked at everything that was around him. He looked to the future of what was coming and he said, amen. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. I read this to myself sometimes in my devotion. One day, someday, as lightning flashes out of the east, the sky will open up and the Lord himself will descend. From heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, for it shall sound. The angel of the Lord will put one foot on the land and the other on the sea and declare with a loud voice that time will be no more. The dead in Christ will be raised to life like Ezekiel's valley of dry bones and they'll receive new bodies. The corruptible laid aside in place of the incorruptible. The mortal in place of immortality. Those who are alive and remain will be changed in the twinkling of an eye into their resurrected bodies. Jesus will set down his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will walk across the Kidron Valley. He will walk upon the Temple Mount. He'll set down on the throne of his father David and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He will rule in righteousness and peace and everything wrong with the world will be made right again. Sin abolished. Sorrow abolished. Death abolished. Guilt, shame, brokenness, injustice, oppression will cease in his name. Death itself will be destroyed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Even Satan himself will bow his knee and say that Jesus is Lord. Every tyrant of history, every terrorist, every demon, even Satan, the Lord of them all, will bow the knee and confess. And the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea and the lion and the lamb will lay together and children will play with the bear and the lion and the infant will play with the viper and not be bitten. Nation will no longer rise against nation and they will beat their weapons into plowshares and they will study war no more. Every captive will be set free. Beauty will rise for the last time from the ashes. Mourning will be laid aside for joy. Despair for praise. And out of the ruins we will build for the very last time. The desert places will bloom. The broken walls rebuilt. Every tear wiped away. For the former things have passed away. We will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The saints of all ages. 
loved ones gone on, with friends and family. And Jesus himself will eat with us and drink with us and serve us. The one who died for us. The one who carried our sin. The one who carried our shame. We will look upon him. We will lay aside faith because we will not need faith anymore. Our faith shall be made sight. And we will lay our eyes upon the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. It's the story of the scripture. The creator of heaven and earth bankrupting heaven who came to earth to redeem heaven and earth just to be with you. That's the story. It tells the story of a father who bankrupted heaven in order to win back his kids, his sons and his daughters. That's the story that we're a part of. That's what we look forward to. As sure as Jesus came the first time, he's coming the second time. And we say with John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's just say that together. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, when we look around us and we see the injustice and the oppression and the strife and the war and the violence, the abuse and the brokenness, Lord, our hearts break to see that sin, sorrow, and death, it still haunts Though the sting has been taken away and Lord, we look for the day when Jesus makes all things right. Paradise was lost at the beginning of the story, but paradise will be regained at the end of the story. You will remake heaven and earth and we will live forever with you. With everything that is good and beautiful and right. And we will rule and reign as your representatives, reflecting your glory for all eternity. Let's all stand together. At all of our campuses, we're gonna sing this last song together and we're gonna be reminded about our blessed hope. We're gonna be reminded what we look forward to. If you think this life is the best there is, if heaven, the next life, if the new heaven and the new earth doesn't excite you, you just haven't thought about it. Because everything you love about this life, it's gonna be better in the new heaven, in the new earth. Father, we sing this to you. It's our prayer. It's our hope. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.